David was the greatest king in Israel's history, and he was described as a man after God's own heart. Now, you might have heard that statement, but good grief, what in the world does it mean? And what can we learn from it? Hi, I'm Yvonne Pran, and welcome to Bible 805. In today's lesson, we're going to take an in-depth look at that statement and be challenged on how our hearts can be ones that please God in the lesson that I've entitled, David, Great Sins and Great Mercy, but Always a Heart in the Right Place. You've heard that saying, but their heart's in the right place. Now, sometimes it's used as an excuse when somebody does something that's really stupid or evil. But oftentimes it's used as a compliment when someone tried to do the right thing and maybe they didn't quite make it. David is the king of Israel that we've now come to in our reading through the Bible in chronological order. Now, not only could you maybe say that about him, but he was described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. Now, we're going to really look at what that means and what we can really learn from it. The phrase where he describes David as a man after God's own heart is actually part of a sermon of Paul's in the New Testament in Acts 13.22, where as he's going through Israel's history, he describes David as a man after God's own heart. Now, I really wanted to know what that meant. I've, I'm familiar with this verse. I've always thought, oh, isn't that neat? But I'd never really studied it before. So the first thing that I did is I went to my favorite resource, the Blue Letter Bible, www.blueletterbible.com. Bible.org, and I looked up what the different words meant in the original languages. So when we look at heart, which I thought was a key word there in the Greek, it is the word cardia, and that should sound familiar. Anything having to do with the heart, we, you know, cardiology, the cardiatric department of the hospital, whatever it is. And of course, the heart is an organ in the body. But the Blue Letter Bible goes on and talks about more of what it means spiritually in the Bible and how it's used in the Bible. And let me just read you what they say about that. It says, Cardia denotes the center of all physical and spiritual life, the vigor and sense of the physical life, the center and seat of the spiritual life, the soul or the mind as the fountain and seat of the thoughts, passions, desires, and appetites, the affections, the purposes, the endeavors, the understanding, the faculty, and the seat of intelligence, the will and character, the center of the will and character. Now, when we look at these things closely, really what it's saying is that everything comes from this particular area of a person. Now, let's look a little bit more in detail on how this word is then used in different parts of the Bible. So, some other uses of the word heart in the Bible, and I'm going to read you the verse and then I'll comment on it a little bit. First of all, in Matthew 6, 21, it says, and we're familiar with this verse, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What's important to us is what we will reflect in our life, as it said earlier in that, our purpose, our endeavors, our desires, our appetites, whatever is important to us, that's what our heart will wrap itself around. And then Jesus went on to say in Matthew 12, 34, he was talking to the Pharisees. He said, you brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
again, what's inside us will come out. It just will. If we want to change something in how we react or what we say, we have to change our heart first because our heart's always going to win out. Our willpower will never be enough. In Romans 10, 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now, I think this is this is really important. I want you to listen carefully to this because this is a verse that's often quoted about how does a person become a Christian. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, the point here is that I want you to realize is that believing isn't just an emotion. You see, we've really downgraded the idea of the importance of the heart and what it means in the Bible. But again, just to go back, in the Greek, it means it's the center, it's the seat of the spiritual life. It's the source of all our thoughts, passions, desires, appetites, endeavors. It's it's the core of our being. And so when we accept Jesus, we don't just say, oh yeah, that's okay, you know, and I have a nice feeling towards him. No, it's got to grip you. It's got to really grip your heart. That's what believing in your heart and then being saved is all about. The word to repent, it's metaneto in the Greek, and it means to change your mind. You've got to completely change, or at least be aware of that you need to change when you become a Christian. And what do you need to change? Your heart needs to be turned towards God, not towards yourself. You are not in charge anymore. You are now serving God. You don't just add God to this little periphery of, you know, your get out of hell for free card. You know, your I don't I don't want to be condemned, so I'm going to trust Jesus and then I'm going to live my life the way I want to. No, 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 no. That is not what it's about. Right from the start, your heart Everything that's in you, that's what decides to become a believer and a follower of Jesus. And this is what we're going to see in David's life. But there are a few more verses that I want to I want to talk about that I want to go over because I think they'll help you understand a little bit better this whole idea of the importance of our heart. Um, in Ephesians 6, 5, it says, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in singleness of heart as unto Christ. All of our work should be done as unto Christ. That is the focus. That should be the focus of our hearts. If anything else, if fear, compromise, indecision, whatever, if these things rule our hearts, we're not really serving with singleness of of our hearts as unto Christ. And so, so no matter what your earthly job is, your heart is focused on the Lord and you always serve him first. This is one area where David was very different than Saul, because if you remember from our lessons about Saul, who was the first king of Israel, he was always focused on what other people thought of him, what he looked like to other people, what the army thought, what was happening. He didn't keep his eyes on the Lord, and because he was looking in all these different directions, he made big mistakes. The next passage is in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, where Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, 
with all thy soul and with all thy mind. The point I want to make with this very familiar verse is that when it talks about loving God with all your heart, as you can see, the way we're defining heart is the source of everything that's in you. This helps us see that it doesn't just mean loving God with a nice emotion, and sometimes that's how we downgrade it. We've played down, we've diminished the definition of the heart into just sort of a mushy emotion, and that's not what the Bible defines defines it as. I was thinking that the term passion, the way we use passion today, might be better, though that term in and of itself has even become pretty um, misused and trivialized though having a passion for God is always very appropriate. And then finally, one more verse on this whole idea of our hearts. In James 5, 8, very interesting verse. Listen closely to this. It says, Be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. And here James is talking about when we're upset about things, when we're confused about things. He says, Establish your heart. Make your heart be at peace the core of you, if what is inside you, if that reality is obedience to God first, if Jesus is Lord, if that's your number one concern, and if you you don't know how to make loving God your number one concern, please go back and listen to the podcast on how to love Jesus. If you're living that kind of life, you don't have anything to fear, no matter what happens in the future, what happens when Jesus returns, any of that, because your heart is established in the right place. Now, after getting a more correct and biblical idea on what we're talking about when we're talking about our hearts, that it's the core of us, it's it's what's inside us, it's what drives every other part of our life, let's now look at David and let's go through his life and see why he was described as a man after God's own heart. We're going to see in him a life totally lived in the awareness of God in the good times and the bad times. And please take a minute to review Psalms, the podcast on that, and that will kind of help set you up for this. But from great victories to reprehensible sins, God was part of it. Now, one little caution on this before I go on. God being in everything does not mean that God is some sort of genie in a bottle that we can call up whenever we're in a jam. That's not what it means at all. We need to remember who he is and who we are. Remember, he is God and we aren't. We sometimes say that flippantly, but it's really important. We can talk to him about everything, but we need to always remember we are not in control. And that may end up meaning that we have to say no to ourselves on a lot of things. But let's look at David and exactly what he did in his life. Okay, starting out, David is a young man. He was actually probably anointed to be king when he was approximately 15 or 16 years old. God had, of course, been looking at his life from the minute he was born, and he says of him at that time, this is the person who I want to be king because, he said, he is the one who will obey me. Now, something that we can learn from this, and a lot of people forget that David was that young when he was chosen to be king, and that it took a very, very long time because that actually this actually came true. We want to encourage the young people in our lives to dream big dreams for God. But at the same time, 
help them to see they need training to make it come true. Now, in my own life, I always wanted to be a teacher for Jesus. I never remember not wanting to do that. And I quite honestly, I was trying to remember, but I don't know who it was that let me help in the kindergartner's class when I was just in third grade. I remember I loved doing it, and I don't know, and this was really a big deal for me as a little kid. When I was in sixth grade, I got my very own Sunday school class. It was at a very little church, and it was a very little class, but it was my class, and I was responsible for it, and I remember that so clearly and how important it was. And actually, what I started Started doing then. I've never stopped since then. Often on, well, pretty much on since then, I have always taught either uh, in some sort of a ministry or a Sunday school class. Currently, while I'm even while I'm doing these podcasts, I do a Sunday school class at our church that is just a great joy to me. And very, very young, I got started on what would be something that's important to me my whole life. Now, you don't know how you can encourage a young person. Maybe they do just some little thing in your church or in your family, and you might comment on it and say, wow, you know, you just did such a great job on that. Have you ever thought about maybe being a Sunday school teacher or working with disadvantaged kids or whatever it is that you might see? Always try to encourage people, but also, too, don't sell them short on what they might need to do to be prepared for it. You see, it took David over 15 years. We're not sure exactly the chronology, but somewhere around 15 years until he became king. During that time, he fought Goliath. He was very popular in Saul's court. He marries his daughter. He leads armies. Everything seems to just be going great. He can just kind of see himself on sort of the track for victory or or whatever. But Then Saul turns on him, tries to kill him, and he's a fugitive for 15 years. Saul takes his wife, gives her to somebody else. He loses his best friend, Jonathan. He can't really be around them anymore. He is alone as far as the people that he formerly loved being with him. But of course he's not because he has the Lord and as we'll see, many other people join him. But he goes on to do really wonderful things and we'll get to those back in a minute. But Saul, on the other hand, whined he disobeyed, he acted presumptuously, he made offerings when he shouldn't make offerings, he blatantly disregarded the Lord, he blamed David, he blamed his soldiers, he blamed his people, he blamed Jonathan, he didn't take responsibility for things. But David, in the meantime, though he's fleeing for his life, Many of the Psalms were written at that time, and though it's hard to date some of them, let me read you a little bit out of Psalm 37, because I think this is reflective of many of the things that were going on in his life, where he says, and this is in the Today's Living Bible, Never envy the wicked. Soon they fade away like grass and disappear. Trust in the Lord instead. Be kind and good to others. Then you will live safely here in the land and prosper, feeding in safety. Be delighted with the Lord. Then he will give you all your heart's desires. Now, little parentheses here. This is one of the most misinterpreted verses in all of Scripture. And you can think, well, you know, what's to misinterpret about that? And let me tell you what it is. It says, he will give you all your heart's desires. 
Now, what that says is that he will give you what you will desire if you trust him. Your desires will become his desires. Unfortunately, this verse is so often interpreted to say that he will give you whatever you want. That is not what the verse says. So he will give you your heart's desires if you're delighted in the Lord, if you trust in him. And don't we really all want that? Don't we want to want what God wants in our life? I, I know that's one of my prayers. And so I would really pray that you would, you would pray that, that you would be delighted in the Lord and that he would give you the things that you desire most in your life. Okay, let me just go on with the psalm. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him to help you to do it. And he will. Your innocence will be clear to everyone. He will vindicate you with a blazing light of justice, shining down as from the noonday sun. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him to act. Don't be envious of evil men who prosper. Stop your anger. Turn turn off your wrath. Don't fret and worry. It only leads to harm. For the wicked will be destroyed. But those who trust in the Lord shall be given every blessing. Only a little while, and the wicked shall disappear. You will look for them in vain. But all who humble themselves before the Lord will be given every blessing and shall have wonderful peace. Those are promises. Some of them we might not see in this life, but those are promises. Now, David in really relying on the words that he has just prayed as a prayer, made these statements of trust in God, he lived them. He did not take matters into his own hands. He didn't kill Saul, even though he had many opportunities to do that. Now, here's what's really important. He knew God's overall commands. He knew he was not to harm the king that had been anointed by God. Now, a key application here is no matter what the provocation, there is never a circumstance that should cause you to disobey what you know God wants you to do. God did not want him to kill Saul. He wanted him to wait. Now David and his troops could have easily rationalized, and we know none of them, a lot of them did, because they encouraged him that God had good grief. God's given Saul into your hands. It must be okay to kill him. But it wasn't. These situations were tests. Does God truly love God as he says he does? Does he truly love God? Does he wait, as he said in Psalm 37, does he wait patiently for the Lord to act? Or is he going to take things into his own hands? Now, because he did not do that, because he waited, because he trusted God, because he didn't kill Saul, he matured to become the greatest king in Israel's history. There were many challenges, many battles during those 15 years where he had to listen to God, where he had to trust God. Many of the Psalms were written during this time that would bless humanity throughout all of human history. Think about it for a minute. If David had not trusted God, If he would have short-circuited God's plan for his life, if he would have stepped in, not trusted, killed Saul, taken the throne for himself, much of human history, and of course David and his family, would have really lost out. The application here is obvious. Don't rush what God is teaching you to do.
No matter what your age, no matter what your stage in life, no matter what you are facing, there will always, <laughs> and I guarantee this, there will always be a temptation for you to do it your way. It will, even though you know better, it'll seem like maybe God has put this uh, opportunity in front of you or a chance to do something or a, don't you realize if you don't do this, blah, 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 whatever. No, you do what you know is right, no matter how tempting something in front of you might be, and God will honor that. Again, Timing is not guaranteed. I tell people this all the time. If you listen to much of my teaching, you'll hear me say it again and again and again. Healing is guaranteed. Total peace, total joy, total solving of every problem. That's guaranteed. Timing is not. And I can guarantee God's timing always takes longer than what we want. But his timing is also perfect. And what we do not see here on earth, we will see in eternity. And I, I don't know who said this, but I thought it was just great. They said no matter what trials we, we endure in this life, that once we get to heaven, once we see Jesus face to face, once we are in eternity, all of these troubles will seem like one night spent in a bad hotel. Now, going along, going back to David, um, he continues to do many fantastic things once he becomes king. He continues to conquer. He's solidifying the boundaries of the land. And one little thing, unless you're really paying attention in your reading, now is the first time that Israel occupies all the land that was given to them after the Exodus. The land was theirs. They just hadn't taken it yet. But David, who through all of his trials learned how to be patient, learned how to trust God, learned how to fight, he was able to take the land. He also conquers Jerusalem, and he makes that his capital. Now, he then decides to bring the ark to Jerusalem. It had been, it had not been in the tabernacle since the Philistines had captured it, but, and this is where he messes up, he did it the wrong way. And a man named Uzzah, he was actually the son of the man who kept it. He reached out his hand to steady it as it was being moved on a new cart. Now, the new cart was what was wrong. That wasn't God's way to do it. That's how the Philistines moved the ark. God's instructions were very specific. It was only supposed to be moved by a proper group of Levites with it on their shoulders. They didn't do it the right way, and it was considered an act of, act of presumption for Uzzah to reach out and touch it, and he died. He was struck dead. Now, David did not respond well to that. He got really angry, and it says he left it alone for three months and then apparently had a little discussion with the Lord. He comes back, and he does it the right way, the way the law prescribes it, on the shoulders of the priest. There was a little bit of pride, a little bit of self-will here. We must always be so careful. David had just had great success. But just because God gives you success in one area, don't ever think that you are above the law, or now you are in charge, and you can set God's rules aside. You can't do that. A seemingly little disobedience can cost you and the people around you greatly.
David has brought the ark to Jerusalem. He has won lots of battles. He is very wealthy. He's very powerful. And so he decides, and this is really a positive thing, he wants to build a temple. He says, I have a nice palace, and I've won all these victories. I want to build a temple for the Lord. Nathan the prophet at first says, go ahead, do it. The Lord is with you. There was nothing wrong with this request. It sounded great from a human viewpoint, but that was not God's plan for David. And so Nathan has to go back and tell him, no, you can't build the temple. You're a man of blood. God wants your son, who will be a man of peace, to build the temple. Now, David could have gotten very angry, but he didn't. And Nathan goes on to say, God will give you an everlasting heritage. And David's response is just acceptance and praise. He thanks God. He humbles himself. He is just incredibly grateful for what he can do. And then he gets back to doing what he was called to do, to conquer and to fight battles. Now, our application in this is what happens when God, in a very obvious way, maybe says no to something that you know is a good thing to do. Maybe it's a ministry at the church and someone else has chosen to do it. Maybe your great idea was completely ignored. Maybe you wanted to serve in a certain way or get a certain job, and maybe it seemed to you like the exact right perfect thing, but God obviously shut that door. What do you do then? Please consider being like David and saying, Lord, I just thank you that you have a better plan for me, that you have something you want me to do, and God will help you do it. I know in my own life, as I said earlier, I know the Lord wants me to be a writer. Well, I didn't put in the writer part, but I've always wanted to do that since I was a little kid too, and I've been professionally published since I was 16 and so I know that's one of those are the two things the Lord wants me to do but it's amazing how I can get distracted on other things and a lot of times maybe it's a ministry that I wanted to be involved in or something like that God said no and sometimes my feelings have been really hurt but I realized if I did this or that even though it might be a really good thing I wouldn't be accomplishing what the Lord wants me to do so now We're going along. David's for a while doing everything that he's supposed to do. But then this is another warning on what can happen if you don't keep doing what you're supposed to do. In 2 Samuel 11, it says, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Oh my goodness, he wasn't doing what he was called to do. He wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. He was the leader. He was the general. He was the one who was supposed to go out to battle. But instead, he decides, "Eh, I'm just going to lay around in Jerusalem. And we know what happens. What follows is his adultery with Bathsheba. He murders her husband, and his child dies. Now, we're going to talk about this, uh, about what happened in just a little bit. But first, very important application, you are never released from God's calling on your life in things large or small until the Lord calls you home.
Now that means from being obedient in a really major ministry to just acting kind. You know, there th- sometimes people will say, well, you know, that person's kind of gotten older and, and they've, you know, they're just getting really cranky. And, um, you know, they've been, you know, maybe they're just tired of being nice, you know, uh, cut them some slack. Uh, you know, at this stage in life, they can do what they want to do. Not for a sermon of Jesus. We are always accountable. We always need to challenge ourselves in things big or little. Lord, if you've left me on this earth, I'm supposed to be doing what you want me to do. And we can never get rid of obedience to that wonderful verse that says we are to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God. We never do enough of that. Now, David sinned. And he sinned terribly, but he did not cease being a man after God's own heart. Because Nathan, who was an extraordinarily godly and brave prophet, he confronts him. And so what does David do? Instead of making excuses, instead of lying, instead of whatever, he pours out his heart to God. And in Psalm 51, which I'm going to read to you, which is so important, he says, Oh, loving and kind God, have mercy have pity on me and take away the awful stain of my transgressions. Oh, wash me, cleanse me from this guilt. Let me be pure again, for I admit my shameful deed. It haunts me day and night. It is against you, and you alone I sinned and did this terrible thing. You saw it all, and your sentence against me is just. But I was born a sinner, yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. You deserve honesty from the heart. See, again, in the heart, again, that's where he had lied to himself, and he said, you want utter sincerity and truthfulness. Oh, give me this wisdom. Sprinkle me with the cleansing blood, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. And after you've punished me, give me back my joy. Don't keep looking at my sins. Erase them from your sight. Create in me a new, clean heart, O God, filled with clean thoughts and right desires about you. See, he's asking that God cleanse that inner part of him and make it once again one that is totally attuned to God. He says, Then I will teach your ways to other sinners, and they, guilty like me, will repent and turn to you. Don't sentence me to death. O my God, you alone can rescue me. Then I will sing of your forgiveness, for my lips will be unsealed. Oh, how I will praise you. You don't want penance. If you did, how gladly I would give it. You aren't interested in offerings burned before you on the altar. It is a broken spirit you want. Remorse and penitence. A broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not ignore. And you see, God is the one who is ultimately offended. David knew he needed a new heart. He, not just the outward penance or sacrifice, but a truly broken and contrite heart. And again, he was forming himself back into being a man after God's own heart. Now with the sin of Bathsheba, this is where many commentaries and writings about David stopped. As I was preparing this lesson, I was shocked to read so many of them. They just, they talk about this and then it just stops. But good grief, that is not the whole story. This incident with Bathsheba actually happened fairly early in David's reign. He lived, he ruled, and he did extraordinary things for the next 30 years. But 
you're going to have to listen to the next podcast next week on part two on this about David. And I'll tell you all about the absolutely phenomenal things God did through and to and for David after his sin. Because God is a God of repentance and mercy and grace. Well, that's all for now. Please check out the notes from this lesson. They're on www.bible805.com and do sign up for the newsletter and some other materials that I put out periodically. And please tell your friends about this podcast and encourage them to listen so they can learn God's Word. That's the important thing. I pray that all believers will really learn God's Word better. Now, until next time, I'm Yvonne Pran, your fellow pilgrim, writer, and teacher for Jesus, and I'd like to close with this benediction. May you know the invitation of God to move from confusion to clarity, from wandering to rest, from loneliness to knowing you are loved, from turmoil to peace, from wherever you are on your spiritual journey, to a growing knowledge of God's Word, and in your personal relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.